we regularly comment on the fact that we know, obviously, all of us here, we know from each other that we, we come into this week, we come into a Sunday morning with whatever baggage we have with us. We've faced challenges this week or trauma or bad news or, or um, only, in some cases, only God knows what. And, um, and so we would uh, hope that you're involved, and I'll mention this again, but I hope you're involved with a, um, some close friends, some close knit group of believers that you can pray together and talk about those details with, because um, we can't do them all on Sunday morning. But I do want to lift up um, uh, a man who most of you have met, whether you know it or not, big guy right by the front door with sticks his big old paw out there and shakes your hand or gives you a hug as he comes in, Don Barron. And um, he was in a, in a four-wheeler, I think, accident this weekend and busted up a bunch of his ribs. And so um, I just want to pray for him. I know he's got to be in a lot of pain. And so um, I want to pray for him this morning and be grateful for his service. And so bow with me, if you will. Lord, um, <clears throat> we come before you for our friend, Don, and, and uh, for his wife. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would give him great comfort, um, encouragement somehow in the midst of all of this. I know he's a, he's a tough guy and he's served you for many, many years. And, and I pray, Lord, that you would give him uh, a sound sense of help and peace and comfort through this, uh, through the medical community and through friends. And Lord, I just pray you would provide healing there. And uh, for Anel, as she's figuring out exactly what the right and wise things for her to do, um, since he's um, not local right now where he's in the hospital. So I pray that you would just pour out your blessings on their family. And I know, Lord, there are others in the room who are facing um, challenges and tough news and hardships. And I pray that this morning you would speak to them as their Lord and their master um, and as someone who loves them and as their friend. So I pray um, this in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> so as we're in John chapter 15, and uh, and. And here we have in the midst of Jesus teaching to his now 11 as they're walking through the city of Jerusalem, um, on their way down the hill through the city, apparently down toward the valley of Kidron, and then they're going to go up the next side into the, into the area known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and so here we have, um, as Jesus is walking through, at some point he has stopped and talked about the vine and the branches. And I didn't do this on purpose, um, but I left the grapevines up here this week. And uh, I think they'll now just have to stay up here th while we go through the chapter 15 because certainly they have changed a lot in the week. Uh, the, vine, the branch being disconnected from the vine in a week has certainly changed a lot. And so I think, I think there's probably something teachable in this as well. That I never, never struck me that um, depending on the, the time of year that it was as Jesus is going through this, maybe, maybe there wasn't just vine and branches there, but there were already vines that are branches that had been cut and were laying in a bundle near as Jesus was teaching, which um, be the vine is not meant to, be, the branch is not meant to be disconnected from the vine, um, nor the vine from the branches. And so um, that'll just be a good, cool reminder each week as that continues to, to uh, fade. Um, so here we have in John 15, as he's gone through this teaching and he's teaching about this connection and this abiding and this intimate relationship that he has with us, he is now therefore going to, going to take this from saying, I want to clarify and make abundantly clear his, his intimate relationship, my intimate relationship with you, God's intimate relationship with his people, God the Father's intimate relationship with his son, and the fact that, that Jesus measures that love that he has for us and for one another through the lens of the love the Father has for the Son. So we get down into verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He's, he's said this about a half a dozen times just in the last few verses. 
It's going to come up again before we're done today. We'll talk more about it. And in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Again, we, we talked about this last week. This is kind of our transitional pat verse between one week and the next. But this is, a, this is an amazing verse, this idea that Jesus is saying here to his disciples in the dark, walking through the streets of Jerusalem. And he says to them, there's no such greater love than this, than someone lays down their life for their friends. Now, obviously, this is a teachable moment. He's encouraging them, and many of them, all of them, will lay down their lives for their friends. That's how each of them is going to die. But Jesus is giving them this picture within just a few hours, as if to say, I want you to have this in your mind, this idea. This is what real love is. My love looks like this, that I lay down my life for my friends. You don't believe me? Just watch a few more hours. Just watch the type of Life that I lay down and what type of death I serve for my friends. Um, he's preparing them for that. When you lay your, down, lay your life down for someone, you make them your friend. Keep in mind, remember, this, uh, this is the Jesus who, as he taught one time and was asked about who, his, who is our neighbor. So remember that when Jesus, we've, we've taught through this, when Jesus had that conversation, some of the religious leaders asked him about the greatest commandment. And he gives two, he kind of cheats. They ask for one, he gives two, this, what's called the Shema, which is understood. This is the correct answer in the Jewish world. If you ask what the greatest commandment is, it is the Shema. The word Shema means hear, listen, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone, or the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the, the greatest commandment. This is, this, is not, this is not like, hey, what do you think is the greatest commandment? This is understood in the Jewish world. This is the correct answer to that question. Jesus gives that answer, which is the answer, the traditional correct answer that has been the correct answer for thousands of years, and then he says, and this one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So here Jesus takes these two different commandments from two very different parts of Hebrew Scripture, brings them together and says, these are the greatest commandment. As if he's saying these are the same thing in some ways. Now, they then go on to say, the, the, the religious leaders of the time go on to say, okay, well then who's my neighbor? Which, by the way, is completely the wrong question. There's like 20 really good questions to be had here. The worst one of all the options just about is, okay, so who do I not have to love? Which is what they're asking. Okay, so who counts as my neighbor and who doesn't? Who do I have to love and who am I, who am I set free from having to love as my neighbor? Who, who gets to not be my neighbor? And Jesus tells a brutal brutal, I mean just flat almost mean story at their expense. And he ends though, he ends the story by asking the questions, the story of what we call the Good Samaritan. So you have people who don't help and someone else who doesn't help. And then you have, <coughs> then you have someone who does help a person. Someone is injured, they're in trouble, someone helps them. At the end of the parable, Jesus says, who was a good neighbor? Now, this is the reverse of the question they're asking. They're asking, who counts as my neighbor now that I have to love, and who do I not have to love? But Jesus' answer to them is actually, no, no, the question isn't who is your neighbor. The correct question is, who are you being a neighbor for? So he reverses it on them. Well, who is my neighbor? Well, I don't know. Who are you loving well enough to be called neighbor? His answer is, everyone is who your neighbor is 
because that's who you're loving well enough to make them a neighbor. Jesus is doing the same conversation here with the word friend. I lay down my life for my friend. When someone lays down their life for you, they've just become your friend. If they weren't before, well, they certainly are now. If you lay down your life for somebody, you clearly are their friend. This is significant as we keep going. One of the things I'm going to wrestle through, and we'll wrestle through all through these chapters, is that Jesus is having a private conversation with his 11 guys. And as is always the challenge in Scripture, we've got to figure out how do we extract from this conversation what applies to us versus what just applied to them. What was this private conversation with these 11 guys? What is for them? And then, but what can we take and go, wait, but that, this part is for me too. We'll talk more about that. You are my friends, he says in verse 14, if you do what I command you. Now see, Jesus has a real problem this, in this. His communication skills really struggle through this, in my opinion. So we have a, this is tough. We have this, I don't know about you, but I, I get all confused in, in 14, 15, 16, even 17. He keeps doing stuff like this. He goes, listen, A leads to B. Now, I'm not even that sequential a person. In fact, I'm not at all a sequential person. Those of you who are sequential people, this has to drive you crazy. The way Jesus teaches through this, A leads to B and B leads to C. And C leads to B and C leads to A and A leads to C and and B leads to A and sometimes B leads to C. That's what he does in this. I'm your friend and you're my friend if you obey my commandments. Wait a minute. I thought you were my friend because you were dying for me, but now you're saying I'm your friend if I obey your commandments. He's going to do this all through. He's been doing it for two chapters. Here's why I think that is. Here's why I think this is going on here. Relationships are messy. They're messy. There's not always a clear delineation. Now, remember, John, John is going to make abundantly clear. This is John. John is not going to leave any question. He's going to write a letter that says, he loved us before we loved him. Okay? So John is not going to leave this open to a question as to who started this whole love relationship between us and God. No, no. While we were sinners, he died for us. He loved us first. But once that relationship begins, think about that, like like a betrothal or a friendship. Hey, will you be my friend? Well, someone starts this stuff, a marriage, a family, a relationship with kids. And so what but but as it moves forward, it gets messy. Who is the starter and who is the responder? It's, it's the main issue in marriage counseling, by the way, is that everybody thinks they're responding to the other person's craziness. That's right. I'm just, I'm just responding to him. What's crazy is he thinks he's responding to her. Well, which is it? The answer is yes. They've, they, you can't trace it back to who, 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 who caused the first problem. Um, some couples want to do that. Like, it's entertaining and not helpful. Like, well, but remember this? But I was running. But you would have, and they can go back to before they were dating, and it's like, we hadn't met yet. That's probably where the problem is, is uh, you both met each other, and you were already messed up people before you got there, right? So, <clears throat> so this is a, Jesus is, is showing us how difficult this is. This is each and both. Each of us have a role. Together, we have a role. I can be a good friend, you could be a good friend, and if we're both good friends together, we have a good friendship. See how that works? If just one of us is, we don't have a very good friendship. You could still be a good friend, or I could be a good friend, but it takes an and for us to have a good friendship. I could be a good husband, my wife could be a great wife, and she is, and if, if, if we're both living that out, then we can have a great marriage. See how that works? 
There's, there's a both and relationship here. Jesus loves us and we obey his commandments and love him and therefore are his friend. And he is our friend because he lays down his life for us. And he gives us an instruction, by the way, over and over again, to love each other. It's multi-part. You know, see here what else he does for his friends? Now listen to this. <clears throat> this, is, this is something that is meant to be a little staggering. It's not for us so often we've grown up in the church because we are so comfortable with these concepts. It's like last week saying, do you, do you realize that God loves you? And, and I get that, I mean, we, we say it, we teach it, we make songs, we put it on doilies, we hang it on our wall. God loves us, right? It's the simplest, most important concept that there is out there. At the same time, it cannot be, there's nothing more profound than this. Um, historically, there, I don't remember who the philosopher theologian was who was asked the greatest thought in Christian philosophy, in Christian theology. What is the greatest concept in Christian theology? And according to legend, his answer was, to quote the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I mean, once you get that, kind of everything else can fall into place. Until you get that, it, it doesn't fall into place. That's the idea. Well, here's what's wild. This is a God, so let me, let's, let's build on this. Not only does this God love you, this is going to be tough for some of you, I want you to listen. Not only does God love you, you can accept that because you can accept that God is just that awesome a dude. You can go with, right, as horrible and awful and, 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 and unlovely as I am, okay, he's God, he could love me anyway. Here's what's wild. God doesn't just love you, he enjoys you. God likes you. Now, that doesn't mean he likes everything about us, kind of obvious, but he likes us. No longer, he tells, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, one, so this is, this is one of those. Can we apply this to us, or is this just for the 11? I'm glad you asked. Our relationship with God, does it transcend mere servanthood or was that just for them? Was, just, was that them he was speaking that to or are we friends who obey his commands? Is it just us or is it them as well? And, and what does that even mean? So we're supposed to obey his commandments. In fact, obeying his commandments is what makes us his friends. That seems a little strange. You wouldn't really say that about hardly anybody else, right? Well, because you obey my commandments, that makes you my friend. That seems like an odd Role. So clearly the point Jesus seems, is, is making here is we're not merely his friends, but we're also not merely his servants. Our relationship with him transcends being servant. This is, this is an important teaching. This is a big deal. That the God of the universe, he may want to be friends with you. Not just your Lord and Master. Not just your King, but your friend. That's a, that's a wild concept. It makes you want to ask, like, has he met me yet? Or is he doing this in the blind? Like, has he realized what he's getting into here? Remember, this is a God, this is a guy who says, I lay down my life for my friends. And he's speaking to 11 guys who in the next 24 hours are going to be faithless. They're going to scatter. They're going to betray him. They're going to deny him. They're going to run for the hills and ignore everything he's taught them. And those are the ones that he has laid down his life for. So he knows exactly what he's getting into when he makes us more than servants, but friends, if that's what happens. 
This, is, this should stagger us a little bit. That the almighty God of the universe loves us. Wow. Chooses us. And wants to be our friend. That's a powerful word here. So is this for us? Well, here's what I think. Um, I, I will tell you, by the way, this idea of God loving us, a, a, a good friend sent an email this week, a very sweet email, and she listens to the sermons online, and she said, um, she, she said like, I don't, I don't cry very often, but the sermon that you preached this last week made me cry. Again, it wasn't me, clearly. She said, it reminded me that when I was younger and, and was really not certain of God's love for me and asked God, Do you, could you show me that you love me for real? That she opened up, she did that thing where you open up your Bible and you just look, and where she opened up to was John 15. And her eyes went straight to the verse, I love you like the Father loves me. There's, there's an expression and an expansion there that, that we could not begin to wrap our brains around. And here he says, maybe he wants to be our friends. So here, he's having a conversation, but here's why I think it applies to us. First, John put it here, knowing that we would read it. I mean, okay, maybe he didn't know we would read it, but he knew people would be reading it. He wanted this read by disciples and Christians down the road, maybe a generation later, five. Could he, could he picture thousands of generations later? I don't, I don't know. I don't know to what degree he could get that, hundreds of generations later. But here's, here's what he says in John 20, 31. These are written, the, the stories and accounts and verses that he wrote, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So even the things that John put in here that are private conversations are meant to teach me something about my relationship with Jesus Christ. John wants me to know something here. Here's what I think it is. John says that Jesus called him a friend. And I think he wants me to know I can be in that boat as well. People who obey him are his friend. That's one. And I try to do that. I seek to do that. I diligently make the effort to obey him. And, and that gives me the opportunity to be his friend. Now, I will also admit, though, I wouldn't be able to place much security on that. My ability to obey him, if that's what the relationship was based on, that would worry me. I hope it would worry you too. But here's what he also said that we just read. I lay down my life for my friends. A good friend lays down his life for his friends. And I am completely convinced that Jesus laid down his life for me. And that he laid down his life for you. And I think that means that he is our friend. Keep, as we keep reading... To take this concept further, specifically what is for us and what is for them. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. I think working backwards through this, certainly the command to love one another, it's shown up over and over and over again. This is how people will know you're my disciples, my followers, if you love each other. Get this. It's this simple. Listen, this actually isn't that hard. This part is really, really easy. If we love each other, we're obeying Jesus Christ. It is, obe it is to obey Jesus to love each other. If you want to obey Jesus, love one another. How many times has he said it? Also, if you're interested in disobeying Jesus, all you need to do is not love one another. To be unloving to one another and then you've nailed being rebellious against the commands of Jesus. 
You've got it cold. So learning to love each other better is, is part of what we're seeking to live out. I do think there is a special kind of anointing for these first guys, these first ambassadors, these first ministers, these first something, multiple layers of, of what it means to live this out. I do. I don't know exactly where that is, but I think there's something special there. But, and, and we talked about this verse. People get really caught up in this, um, whatever you ask, in, ask the Father in my name, I will give it to you. So let's, let's talk a little bit about this. I'm a big fan of diving into tough passages. I don't know about you, but years ago, I stopped running from tough passages and instead dive into them. And just, I have found more cool stuff in these passages. And this is one of them. Because let me tell you, I've asked for stuff in the name of Jesus Christ and not gotten it. Anybody else? Just me? I have asked for things that were good things. I have asked for the life of other Christians in the name of Jesus Christ, and they've died. I have asked for God to heal people in the name of Jesus Christ, and they're sick. Now, maybe that's because the prayer of a faithful person avails much, and I'm just not that faithful. That's, that's a very distinct possibility. But I think the problem is, so often we try to trust God for something he's not promised us, and so we, we talked last time, we mentioned this phrase that the people who abide in Christ pray prayers that get answered. Like it's not just a one directional thing and we abide in Christ, then we know how to pray and we know what to pray and, and, and here's the thing, we're praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Now again, <clears throat> I think a lot of people think that they've now, they've now found the, when they find that verse they go, now I have the, the, the lamp that I rub, and when I say the right words, I get my wishes fulfilled, right? That's what that means, that Jesus is, Jesus is a genie with limitless wishes, so long as I use the phrase, in Jesus' name, that we need like a Latin version of that, so that we, we pray that, right? We, we pray that as a magic, it's our, it's our magic prayer, right? It's, it's, we ask for something, and if we do it right, and we say the right words, and in the right way, with the right flip of the wrist, then we get it, right? We get that thing. Accio Beamer. Like that's what we're, we're saying. Like I, I want something and so I just say the magic words and then I get it. That's what we, I think we sometimes think that. Versus recognizing um, this concept of being in the name of Jesus is a really cool concept. Um, in Colossians, Paul's writing in Colossians. In Colossians 3.17, he says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I don't think here any of us think that what the Apostle Paul means is we're supposed to walk around saying the words in the name of Jesus Christ about everything that we do. I eat this hamburger in the name of Jesus Christ. I tie my shoes in the name of Jesus Christ. Like, not that we would say that out loud because that would be some kind of magic words. This is what he's talking about is doing these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong when we pray with saying that. But what are we saying? What is Jesus calling us to with this? It's not, it's not a magic phrase. Of course not. It means to be conformed to his will. To live within his image and in his kingdom. To do what we do with his approval as if we have his approval to do it, to say it, to pray it. In his service, by his strength, according to his will. It, the idea here is if we're quoting him, like we have his seal, like we have the king's seal, and we're stamping his seal on it, as if it were his words. We're asking for it in his name. 
Which means very clearly that we're saying, I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Meaning, if it's his will to give it to me, I want it. And if it isn't, I don't want it. It's to submit our name to his name. We're not asking for it in our own name. We're asking for it in his name. We go to the Father and say, Father, this is what I want. I'm asking in the name of your Son. And he doesn't go like, well, then I'm stuck. I have to give it to you because you know the magic words. No, no. He says, good. I'm glad you're asking in that way. That is the right attitude to have. That is the right mindset to have. You are not your own. You have been purchased by my son. So you're asking in his will, in his initiative, as if I'm his representative, as if people assume that. I'm asking in the name of my king, this way, from this position, in the state of being in the name of Jesus Christ, calling upon the name of the Lord. Here's what's wild. As I dug a little further, that phrase, call upon his name. Calling upon the name of the Lord is the Hebrew scripture words, essentially, for prayer. When we go back and we see all the key events, I never noticed this before this week, when we see these key events in scripture, whether it's the giving of the Ten Commandments, or, or it is the covenant between Abraham, let's look at them. Exodus 34, 4 and 5. So Moses went up on the tablets, cut two tablets of stone like the first, and rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Genesis 26, 25. There he built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. We see this all through. This is what it means. It's what the Apostle Paul tells us to do in the book of Romans. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. By the way, his name, Yeshua, means God saves. So, so when we pray, what we are doing is calling upon the name of the Lord. We are praying in his name by definition of praying to him. We're going to him and saying, what do you have for me? Here's what I want, but what do you have? What is your will? I want it only in your name, in the name of your son. It's a confession. It's a knelt fealty, a bowing of the neck and a bending of the knee. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus Christ. It, it makes sense then that we would get the desires of our heart. As one, I was reading through it, and a, um, uh, I won't even try to tell her story, but a nun from the medieval era once said, I get everything I want from God because all I want is what God gives me. There's, there's something very powerful to that mindset. I, if he didn't want me to have it, I don't want it. Therefore, I always get what I want from him. It works that way too. It's a, it's a powerful picture. Remember, Again, I think there's this temptation to us to picture God as someone who we've got to kind of convince or, again, say magic words or somehow versus recognizing this is a God who is declaring himself our friend who loves to give us good things. By the way, before we're done, we'll run into this. But John tells us in his letters, it's not just friend. So it's not just master. It's not just king. It's not just Lord. It's not just God. It's not just boss. It's not just friend. It is also Father. 
It is brother. It is father. The relationship here is, is staggering. So, of course, it's messy because it's with us. We call upon that one's name. Hopefully you've picked up on this idea that loving one another is an important instruction from Jesus. It comes up over and over again, and I think part of it, we're going to see part of why right here. This next passage we're going to look at is not one that's, I think, taught very often. Understandably, it's hard to make an application for us in America. I think that will probably change. I think by the time, you know, whenever God retires me from this, I think probably we will be preaching this passage more often. So Jesus has just taught the significance. Love each other, love each other, love each other, love each other, over and over again. And he's, he's modeled it after this relationship between God. And now he says, now love each other. And he said this over and over again in all these chapters. And here's part of why, I think, is this next phrase. Because you're going to need to be loved by each other in the face of what you're going to deal with. Verse 18. If the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hates you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours. But all these things they do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. In other words, one of the reasons we better love each other is because that's all the love we're going to get. We're not going to get love from the world. We'll talk more about that concept here in a second. I, I don't want you to hear this passage. Sometimes in the past, Christians have read this and said, oh, we better build barricades and bunkers. We better build compounds and stack, store up ammunition and, and protect ourselves from the hatred of the world. That's not Jesus' cure for the hatred of the world. He has made it very, very clear. What is Jesus' cure for the hatred that we will face from the world? It's the love that we will experience from one another. Years ago, I've heard preachers, and I understand what they're saying. I've heard preachers say that the church, church, the local church is it's not meant to be some holy huddle. It's not what it's for. But the more I take on this role, the more I think what church is, is a holy huddle. That that's exactly what it is. Now, I know what they mean. They mean we're not supposed to only be inward focused as a church. Well, of course not. But when we're here, especially meeting in a time like this, I think that's exactly a big part of what church is supposed to be. Now, part of it is because we're not playing a game out there. We're not fighting the fight out there. So we come to church and go like, now, time for me to live the Christian life for a few hours. No, no. That, if that's what you mean, then, yeah, you've got all of it mixed up, not just what church is. Three, morning, three hours on Sunday morning cannot support your Christian life. It can't offer you a Christian full, abundant life. It can't even offer you enough friendships to survive the Christian life. That's part of why we strongly encourage people. We say you, you need to find a body of believers, a smaller body of believers that you can engage with on a regular basis. Because what happens, here's what I think Sunday morning church is supposed to be like. It's essentially us showing up bloody, bruised, dirty, maybe concussed. And we're to gather up in a circle and kind of lean on each other to catch our breath, hear from the coach, hear what the, what the owner says, what is it supposed to look like? What's the game supposed to look like? How are we doing? 
We finally catch our breath. We get the game plan. Break. Then we go live the Christian life out there where we're probably going to be hated. Now, we still live in the, in the little diamond, on the little cowboy, on the buckle of the Bible belt here in Tyler. So we don't receive a lot of direct hatred yet. Part of why we're discipling a next generation of children the way we are is to prepare them for the fact that that may happen. But also I want you to keep in mind, this isn't so that we can be afraid of the world. The, the Greek word here is cosmos. It's used all through the New Testament, but the Apostle John loves it. More than half the times it's used, it's John using it. He, he really makes, he's teaching something very important through Jesus in regards to this idea of cosmos, the world. It started in the ancient Greek idea as kind of the order of the world, the way the world works. Over time, it came to mean the world order, as in, wink, wink, the way the world works. The power behind the real world, the real power behind the world, the way the world actually works, the economy of the world, the philosophy of the world, the ethics of the world, and how that really plays out, and all the, the darkness that it can possibly be. We've seen it in the book of John from chapter 1, all the way back from chapter 1, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, cosmos. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. So John is teaching us about this from the very beginning of his book, this idea. There is a world out there. There's this thing called the world. It has its own philosophy, its own economy, its own mindset, its own everything, its own world view. Jesus sees it this way. Jesus sees it as a fallen, rebellious thing, an ethic in need of saving, and in opposition to the kingdom of God. But, again, his solution isn't compounds and hand grenades. His solution is love. In fact, you probably know of a verse that references the fact that God so loved the cosmos that he sent his one and only begotten son that anyone within that world who would believe could have eternal life through him. That's that passage. Once again, God's solution here is the love that he gives. He loves the world, but the world doesn't love him. Only those who are called out of the world, who are saved from the world, can learn to love him, be his friends, be his children, to live that out. We need each other in that. We need to be able to love each other. And by the way, I love that Jesus notes that we could have avoided all this. All he had to do was keep his mouth shut. If he hadn't taught, if he hadn't shown, if he hadn't revealed the truth of who he was and why he was here, we could have avoided all this turmoil that he's about to go through. Verse 24 says, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Jesus knew better than anyone in history it isn't always safe to tell the truth. Speaking the truth to people not interested in it can be very dangerous. Now, you, you may already have in mind people who get mad at you when you speak the truth. That may be because you're a jerk. If you're a jerk, even in the name of Jesus Christ, they don't, that's not called persecution. That's called you're a jerk. Okay? Don't do that. We speak the truth in love as followers of Jesus Christ. We teach the faith with gentleness in the name of Jesus Christ. 
So, so if, you're, if you get in trouble just because you're a pain in everyone's rear end, well, that's not persecution. That's just, just desserts. However, if we are seeking to teach the truth in love, to speak the truth in love, and, and we're really seeking to do that and engaging with that, understand Jesus warned us how this would happen. In, in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us not to judge by any standard we wouldn't want applied to us. So he tells you, be careful. Be careful with how you judge other people because the way you judge, you're going to be judged by that same standard. The standards you use, just be prepared for those standards to be used by you. Otherwise, you're just being a hypocrite, which is a big part of what the Sermon on the Mount is about. But he gets down to 7 verse 6 and says this, Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. So apparently, falling within the heading of not judging people is to know which people are dogs and pigs. So he says, don't do that. But notice what he says about this. You may recognize this. There are people who you try to love and speak the truth through and share it with, and they just seem to hate you more and more. We should expect this. We should predict this. It's been a weird fluke that that hasn't been what we've been experiencing in America. Don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. People won't love you for speaking the truth, even Gently, even kindly, even in love. We're not looking for the world to love us. Understand that is not a measure of success for the king, in the kingdom of God. It is not a measure of success that the world likes, approves, or loves us. The measure of success is whether or not we are loving them. Not whether they see us as friends, but whether we treat them as friends. Not whether they see us as neighbors, but whether we treat them as neighbors. That's the measure of success is, is obedience there. Jesus warned his followers you stand with me, you stand with the Father, you stand together, you speak the truth, and you will pay for it. He quotes his forebear David. People hated David without cause as well. This isn't paranoid rambling. This isn't us against the world stuff. This is us with Jesus stuff. This is us together stuff. God loves the world. It doesn't love him. Some of us know, some of us were in the world and we recognized we needed saving. We recognized that the way we were doing wasn't working. It was leaving us empty. The world's economy wasn't fulfilling us. I've told you before about in a period of just a few months, I had four men come to me for counsel saying their life felt empty. And they were, they were certain that they would feel better when something happened. And for some reason, they all used the number four in their bank account. But one of them said 400,000, and one said 4 million, and one said 40 million. That's when I'll be satisfied. That's when I'll be happy. That's when I'll feel safe. That's when I won't fear anymore. That's what'll take away my anxiety is when my savings account finally hits 40 million, then I'll feel great. Or 4 million or 400,000. Pick it. It won't do it. We have to be rescued out of this world economy mindset, this world mindset. We have to be rescued from it. We have to recognize we need that. He has come to be our friend. He has laid down his life for his friends. The world is not all it is. It is not my home. Hebrews 13 points out, this isn't home base for me and it won't last and that we long for a new home. At some level, that's how we're supposed to be, is longing for something better, something greater, something more complete, something more. So let's pray and ask for him to lead us in this. Father, thank you for your great gifts. You've given us so many great gifts here. We know we are wealthy and we have plenty and, and we have enough to eat, and we can make our houses warm and cool, 
And we are so blessed in so many ways. The world is a really comfortable place for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to never be so comfortable here that we think that this is our home. God, I pray that you will remind us that we need to love each other, that we have got to work past the issues that we have in our heart, the barriers that we call race, or the barriers that we call socioeconomic, or the barriers that we call sex or gender, the barriers that we call all of these things barriers, which are things that you have created us in us the opportunity to love across any of these boundaries, across any of these lines. And I pray that we would love with the kind of over-the-top, never-ending love that the Father has for the Son, that you have for your Son, that your Son has for us, and I pray we will learn to have this kind of love for each other. Even with people who don't deserve it, even people who aren't very lovable, that we would love them out of obedience to your Son. No one has earned love from another person, but your Son has earned the right to command us to love each other. We thank you for that. Teach us to do this well, Lord, in our homes and with our friends. Lord, teach us to do this in the world, to love well. We ask this in the name of your Son, not as a magic phrase, but in the name of your Son, confessing our shortcomings and asking that that your Son and his grace fulfill our prayers as he knows is best. That's what we mean. Your will be done, not ours, Father. Thank you for the opportunity to come to you in this way. Thank you, Father, that you choose us to love us and to be our friends. I like having friends, God. Thanks that you're one.